During the COVID-19 pandemic, we've faced unprecedented demand shocks, and we've heard lots of questions about food supply chains. I thought there'd be some value in talking about issues of food supply and the impact of food demand disruptions across all of the players in these various value chains. My name is Mike Von Massow, and this is the Food Focus Podcast. This episode, we speak about beef with John Masswall. He provides some insight into the challenges in beef processing and the impact on beef producers and even on us as consumers. I think you'll find the discussion interesting. Well, hello, John, and thanks for taking the time to have a chat. Yeah, good afternoon, Mike. Uh, Thanks for asking me on. So, John, you and I are going to have a conversation about the beef industry, particularly in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Tell me first, before we get started, give me a, a sense of, of who you are and, uh, and your history in the beef industry. Sure. Well, I am uh, very recently uh, retired from the Canadian Cattlemen's Association staff. It's been less than a month that I've been retired, so I don't really feel like I, I am yet. But uh, yeah, I was with CCA for 15 years, uh, heading up the Ottawa function, uh, the lobbying, as well as uh, international relations, being involved in a lot of the market access, trade negotiations, and uh, and that was following uh, a career that I had in the in the federal government, mostly with foreign affairs, and having served as the the agriculture trade counselor at the embassy in Washington in the early 2000s. You know, so I kind of get a sense as to what's what's happening uh, right now. You know, certainly haven't been in the in the midst of the whole BSE crisis some years ago. And, and there certainly feels like there's some elements of that kind of that are applicable to what's happening today. Oh, without a doubt, it's likely fodder for a different conversation, but it would be really interesting to hear perspectives on the ag trade insight from your time at the, at the embassy in Washington. But that's probably for another day. Well, maybe, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Yeah. <laughs> so... You and I interacted a bit regarding this issue on Twitter, which is how I came to give you a shout. And I think one of the things that gets lost in these plant closures, while for the most part we're not seeing, in the short term at least, impacts for customers at the the meat counter in grocery stores, there is likely some impact at the producer level. Is there pain in the beef production sector right now due to some of these plant closures? Well, very much so. And, you know, these plant closures that everybody is becoming aware of in the public now, you know, certainly a a more recent development in Western Canada happening through the United States as well, as well as here in Eastern Canada. But, you know, the reality in Eastern Canada in particular is that this comes on top of the the fact that a, a beef plant already closed in February. And there has already been very significant capacity reduction for processing cattle in eastern Canada, even to the extent that producers in Ontario have been shipping cattle out to Alberta to get them processed. And now that's also not an option. So there had already been pain building, particularly in eastern Canada, but now it is, uh, you know, ubiquitous across Canada as well as through the United States. So we're, we're seeing, you've seen particularly in Ontario, that plant close capacity go down. And really, that gives an example of how cattle 
can move. You're saying cattle are going to Alberta for processing as well, mm -hmm. from Ontario even, because of limited capacity. Mm -hmm. So what happens as more plants close, there become less places for those cattle to go, and they have to go further, which costs more money. Well, that's it. They, they have to go somewhere. And, when, you know, once those animals are ready, you know, I think we talked about on Twitter, and I was trying to explain in, in that Twitter thread that the people that are feeding these cattle and, and doing the final step in the process, they have, you know, made decisions a number of months ago to target having animals ready at a certain time, at a certain weight, trying to hit a certain quality that the beef will grade out at. And if something happens that they can't market those cattle when they're ready, that has very negative implications in terms of both increased cost as well as uh, a decline in the price that they're eventually going to get for those cattle. And just to give some context of the the numbers, you know, I was looking at the, the average domestic weekly kill in, in March just here in Canada, was about 11,000 head per day. In Canada, that's fed cattle as well as, you know, old cull cows and, and the like. And on top of that, uh, we typically ship, you know, pretty close to 10,000 head of cattle a day into the United States. So if you, if you look at those those numbers, now you're, you're in the neighborhood of getting close to 20,000 head of cattle that need to go somewhere every single day of the week, either in Canada or in the United States. And as those spaces start to disappear, those animals are still there and they're still adding up. So there's a there's a backlog that's filling up and it's getting worse every single day. And so so the flow of both cattle and beef in both directions is one of the reasons people have argued that we're not likely to see in the short term problems at the at the meat counter, but for sure are causing some grief for producers because they have to find a home for these cattle. Absolutely. You know, so even when a facility is running, I mean, let's think about a packing plant. They, they have not been designed with social distancing in mind. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to maximize the, uh, you know, the output per square foot that, that they have. And, and so just to, to simplify it, just, Think of, you know, a certain piece of the carcass comes down a conveyor belt. And, and, and let's say maybe that length of that conveyor belt that is dedicated to cutting out a certain muscle, you know, might be 30 feet long and have, have 10 workers that are sort of three feet apart each um, trying to try to deal with that particular task that they have. So they're they're in there quite close. And, and, and so now what's happening is. You know, the COVID-19 has been introduced in some of these facilities. They've had to close down. So they're trying to stop the spread within their workers to keep their workers safe. They're also now trying to redesign and put new protocols in place so that, you know, that these workers aren't three feet apart. Now they're six feet apart. And so therefore, over that 30, you know, foot conveyor, which is still going to exist as a solid structure, you know, maybe now you've only got five workers instead of 10. So on that particular piece, you cut your capacity at least by half. I understand they're doing things like putting plexiglass uh, spacers between the employees, those sorts of things. So, so that's a big part of your capacity constraint is the physical space that you're in. Another part is the number of workers that you have, and of course, you know certainly some have become sick and uh, and, and and 
may not return, at least in the short term. And, and another big part of the capacity constraint is the amount of cooler capacity they have. So how much beef can they actually keep in storage, particularly during a time where things like trucks and deliveries have slowed down? So you've got all these factors that are working together. And, 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 and so part of that thing where they say, well, there likely won't be a shortage seen at the grocery stores in the short term. I've, I've never heard kind of an estimate as to what time frame, but there's a lot of beef that's in the freezers, that's in the coolers that can, that can still come out for, for a period of time. But the amount that's going to be going in at some point is going to notice to be, uh, to be quite a bit less. And I think you made a couple of really good points there. The first being that even as these plants close, they might not reopen at the same capacity because of physical distancing or because of the availability of labor, either because people are sick or are refusing to come in. The, the one other challenge I think many of these plants have is because they are often rural plants built for environmental and water storage and other issues further away from the city, they require significant numbers of people to work in them and are often running buses from the city. Mm-hmm. And so they might have to also increase the number of buses to facilitate social distancing within these buses, because that could have been as much as anything a source of transmission of the virus, even if it wasn't happening within the plant. Yeah, ab- absolutely right. It's not just managing the personnel while they're doing the task. It's while they're commuting to and from work, you know, while they're eating lunch, the cafeterias, what, what have you, at the wash up, uh, in the locker rooms. You know, so it's, it's all of these things. And, and this is a type of business, you know, in, in meatpacking plants. It's not, you know, it's, it's not the kind of job that Canadian parents grow, uh, you know, hope that their kids will grow up and work in a meatpacking plant kind of thing. So there's, there's always a challenge getting enough workers on there. They, I mean, they are good paying, they're union jobs, you know, with, with benefits and, they're certainly well above minimum wage. That's not the kind of job that, that Canadians really grow up, you know, dreaming that, that they'll be doing. There are lots of Canadians in there, uh, but they also rely quite a bit on, on foreign workers, temporary foreign workers. And, and often when they bring temporary foreign workers, let's say you're at, out at High River, Alberta or Brooks, Alberta, where the two largest packing plants are in Canada. These are small towns. And, and, and so the companies, part of their obligation also is to provide housing. For these these foreign workers that come in, so they provide the housing, they provide the, uh, the maybe the transportation, or if you know some of them have cars, they do carpooling, you know. So you've got all kinds of challenges in terms of this whole distancing of people that uh, that, that nobody just never thought of before. Yeah, and all of a sudden, well, we configure these plants to to really optimize food safety. We've now had to, and and we think about worker safety in terms of equipment and knives and that sort of thing. They're often wearing chainmail aprons and chainmail gloves. We've not had to do it in the context of a pandemic before and think about transmission between individuals. And so while we expect many of these plants to reopen, like you said, there may be some reconfiguration in these plants as they develop protocols to allow for the types of social distancing that we're going to require. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think another piece of that challenge is these are generally very cool, damp environments that they're working in. You know, they're, they're trying to keep the meat cool. You know, the, the, the workers are wearing heavy clothes to keep, to keep them warm, but it's the kind of environment that, you know, again, I'm no scientist or doctor, but just from what I've heard, it's the kind of environment that a virus can really enjoy. So 
yeah, they, they certainly have to be mindful of all that. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that is not just happening in a meatpacking plant, it's across, occurring all across, uh, not just the Canadian economy, but the world. I think a lot of things are going to have to be re-engineered. And, and I guess we have to think about then, of each of the businesses that exist, what are the other businesses that rely on those? And, and what changes uh, do, do they need to look at? And, and that's where we come to, you know, on the cattle side, how, how it's affecting us. You know, certainly that, that beef demand is there. And if you're a consumer going to the grocery store, you're still seeing the beef. And in fact, you're seeing the beef is quite a bit more expensive. Like I've, I've kind of noticed the last few times I have ventured in the grocery store, it is sort of inching up there a, a little bit more each time. And it's hard for, I guess, the, the, the consumer to understand why that might be. And, you know, part of the equation is, and I, and I haven't seen, you know, in, in terms of looking at export data and trade data, that information is usually lags by a couple of months. So I haven't actually seen current data on what's happening on exports, but given the logistics and, and cargo and all those sorts of things, we're, we're probably going to see a downturn on, on exports would be my guess. And um, exports add a lot of value to the packing plants and, and ultimately the price they pay for the cattle. And a lot of the things that get exported are the things that Canadians don't like to eat. You know, the organ meats, the lungs, the hearts, the livers, all of those sorts of things. So, you know, sometimes when I hear, uh, you know, reporters talking about, well, you know, we export about half of our beef, but, you know, if the production is down by half, we'll, we'll just be eating that extra beef that doesn't get exported. I'm not sure I'm going to see, we're going to see a mass shift of Canadians starting to eat organ meats and lungs and, you know, stomachs and, and those sorts of things. I, I hope we do. Um, you know, that would certainly help the, the industry out, but those have traditionally been very undervalued products. And, and if the, the beef industry is not getting the value from all of those other products, then they need to get more money from the ribeyes, the strip loins, the ground beef, and, and all those things that, that are being consumed here. So it's, it was a very similar thing in BSE. And, and the shorter answer is the reason the price of those things that Canadians are eating is because we're not selling the whole animal for the maximum value. And I think that's a point that's lost on many people. You know, the people, even though they know sort of intuitively that there's a strip loin and, you know, and, and, and all of these different cuts, they don't think about, well, a farmer is selling the whole animal and a packing plant is buying and, and processing the whole animal and then they sell the constituents of that animal in different places. And it's not everyone taking exactly the same thing. Yeah. We need to find and the reason we have a, a, a vibrant beef industry is because we can export some of those offcuts that create value for the carcass so that we don't have to uh, either pay farmers less or charge more for the premium cuts. So thinking about those, you know, that picture many of us have seen of the different cuts on the side of an animal, yeah, that that really matters. Uh, you know, I, I remember back in the summer of, of 2003 uh, during BSC and how, you know, the public really wanted to help. And, and the public generally does want to help and is sympathetic towards the farmers and, and you know, and what can we do? And uh, back in 2003, we were lucky that the public actually cons increased its consumption of beef, but they also, you know, really focused on the increased their consumption of the things that they liked. And we actually had to import 
more of the things that Canadians were liking. And, and we were just awash in, in all of these other products that, that we couldn't export. You know, so I remember at, at that time and, and the similar things happening through our, our promotion, uh, organization, Canada Beef, they have been very busy putting up a lot of uh, new recipes and getting more hits. Uh, more people are at home, but more people are doing cooking and, and those sorts of things and are, and are interested in trying different things. So, you know, if we had one thing that we could ask the public to do to help is to, to try and uh, incorporate some of those lesser valued beef products into your, your daily menu and your recipes and, and those sorts of things, you know, so, um, you know, if you always wanted to try liver and heart and, and those sorts of things, now's the time. And where can they find those recipes? Uh, on the Canada Beef website. Uh, I believe it's, it's probably canadabeef.ca. Okay, perfect. So we talked a little bit about some of the short-term things that, you know, putting in barriers, maybe spreading people apart. Do we need to fundamentally look at beef processing in this country and do something different in the long term to protect us from this sort of thing? Well, I, as I say, I think there's going to be a lot of re-engineering going on. You know, we need more processing here. And, you know, again, one of the lessons we learned in BSE at that time was we needed more processing. And I recall we went from about 70, 72,000 head per week in May of 2003, and we got up to over 100, I think it was close to about 110,000 head per week capacity we got to by, by adding um, additional facilities. Um, that happened through, there were some tax incentives that, that, that happened. But unfortunately, after that came some additional regulatory burdens that were imposed, particularly in 2007 with the enhanced feed ban, uh, which made it just, you know, kind of keep it over, over simple, just to really increase the costs of processing animals. And we're still living with those today. And I think that was probably one of the, the big objectives of the cattle industry now is we're, we're well beyond that. Uh, we should be aligning our processing regulations with, with our, you know, our competition as well as our co-industry in the United States. It is much more costly to process cattle in Canada than it is in the United States due to the regulatory requirements. And because of that, all of that additional capacity that we gained in 04, 05, after 2007, it just started shutting down again. You know, so, so right now we're, we've settled in. We're, we're probably in that 65 to 70,000 head per week capacity again. So, so it's not just building the capacity. It's creating a competitive environment that allows that capacity to thrive and to continue to buy Canadian cattle. That is absolutely it. You know, so there's the, there's the regulatory uh, structure. There is again access to the workers. That is a big thing. You know, I, I think if uh, if there could be some additional assistance for adding cooler capacity, because again, there's a big constraint. You know, I think there's a number of things that that could be done. You know, I, I think of the overall environment that we're in. I I kind of imagined it as, uh, you know, like the moving walkway in the airport, where. You've got, when you get on that moving walkway, it's really long, you know, and you don't, you don't see the end of it, but you do expect to get off of it at the end. But if somebody throws a barrier at the end, uh, and all the people are on it and more people are getting on it, you've got chaos at the, at the end. And so that's, that's what's happening right now. We got the beef production system where the, the cattle are still coming in the pipeline and, um, you know, they're expecting to be able to process them at the end. 
But if you need to process 15 to 20,000 head, you know, per day, and you suddenly only have capacity to do five or 6,000 head, then there's over 10,000 head that are just stuck there. And there's more coming up behind it. Yeah. So, you know, we, we need to look at elements that can increase that capacity, um, make sure that the capacity is there. But in the short term, while we have that, we need to sort of slow down the walkway and somehow prevent additional animals from getting, getting into, into the pipeline. And <laughs> so that's why, you know, I, I think what kind of sparked this is I was, I was trying to describe um, you know, for the public and, and politicians, what that whole pipeline looks like and, and where can we look at some off ramps and some ability to do things differently. So some of those things will be temporary, but hopefully some of them will be permanent as well. And, and that's a perfect segue to, for the, for the last segment I wanted to cover in this episode was let's talk a little bit about the structure of the beef industry, because I think, you know, you and I have both worked in it and have a good sense of, uh, of how, cattle come to the market but but i think for many canadians it's a mystery you know we hear the media talk about oh ranchers are hurting and the truth is there are multiple different players in the beef industry some of which don't always get along but that's again a story for another day and there are different components that link together there's not just a beef farmer who all of a sudden creates a, an animal that needs to go for processing mm-hmm. and these animals, you know, animals that are being born this spring aren't coming to the market this summer. They'll be coming to the market next summer or over the next 18 months. And, and so people are making plans now that will have ramifications over the next couple of years. And if people start culling cows, then we'll have less supply again later when, when we're back up and, and looking for these animals. So Let's talk very quickly about about sort of that structure. Uh-huh. Yeah, in addition to what you said, I think layered on top, you know, we're, we're hearing all these great stories about some industries, whether it's the auto industry retooling to make equipment or, you know, uh, distillers and brewers that are retooling to make hand, hand sanitizer. I mean, those are fabulous things, but, you know, if you're a beef producer, it's it's hard to switch from from having an animal to, to doing something else or even to stop that animal because the biological process is, uh, it's, a, it's a cycle that repeats itself each year. And it starts, uh, you know, we're coming up to the time of year, usually May through July, when uh, farmers are putting those bulls out in the fields with the cows, you know, and, and they know what to do. And the cows become pregnant. You know, that gestation process is similar to a human. It's about nine months. You get a calf next uh late next winter right so over that winter you're feeding that cow because we we talk about all how the cow is the factory and the product is the calf so what you want is you want to get a calf each each spring or early each spring and so we've we've just come through the calving season um so all the beef farmers out there are now got all these new calves the calves are going to then spend the summer with the mothers on pasture, um, and 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 the process is that the bulls are going to come again, you know, and the and and the cows are going to be getting pregnant again while the calves are 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 getting uh, you know bigger, 
typically born about 500 pounds. You know, by about fall, they might be about eight, 900 pounds. And in the fall is when those farmers are going to sell those calves. You know, there, there, there's different ways of doing it, but just to keep it simple, we'll say that the calves will be sold to a cattle feeder. Uh, who is intending to take them from that 800, 900 pounds up to a market weight of about roughly 1,200, 1,300 pounds over a certain number of months. And, and some of them, they're going to feed a little faster. Some of them are going to feed a little slower because they're now trying to spread, spread out the production around the year so that we have beef being produced all year, you know, recognizing also that there's, there's some seasonality. So like, Actually, right now is the time that you, you'd be wanting to have more cattle coming to, to the processing because we're starting to get to the start of the, the time of year when people want to be outside barbecuing. It's the grilling season. Uh, it, it's, it's all coming. So when these cattle feeders buy these calves, they're making that prediction to say, all right, I, I, I'm going to want to market that finished animal. You know, five months from now, six months from now, they're, they're looking at the calendar, they're scheduling, they're, they're getting a target date, they're going to have a target weight. So they're figuring out what's the cost of the, the corn or barley or whatever I'm going to feed to it. And, and they're making that calculation. It all works backwards to, all right, here's the amount that I can pay for the calf. Here's what I expect to sell the finished animal for. Here's what my cost of feed is going to be, you know, and, and, and maybe trying to make about, Thirty to fifty dollars per animal in, in that ballpark is what they're looking at. So they they do all that, and then suddenly they cannot send. There's no space to send those finished animals to. If they have to keep them longer, then they've got to feed them more than they expected to. The animals keep getting bigger, which you know we know can have an, an impact, negative impact on the eventual beef quality. Also, the packing plants are designed to handle animals of a certain weight range. If they get too big, then the packers don't want them. So if they get beyond that optimal target delivery date, the farmer has got more costs and the animal is eventually worth less. And so I I think what we're seeing now is with where prices are, the animals are probably going to sell, if you can even get them sold for about six, seven hundred dollars less than the cattle feeders were expecting to get from them. So rather than making whatever it is they were targeting to make, they've got losses of several hundred dollars per head. So this then works its way back into that that process. If you if you think back to that original farmer who's gonna put his bulls with his cows, because we're we're coming to that time of year. And they're also thinking, what, what do you think I might be selling my calves for this September or October? And knowing that these massive losses are happening to the cattle feeders that would buy those calves, they, they're probably starting to get very worried and wondering, is it even worth trying to get those cows pregnant to, to have a calf to sell next fall? And, and if I don't, well, what are my options? My option is probably, do I, do I stay in business? Can I, can I stay in the beef business? Um, do I sell that cow? Uh, and if they sell the cow, they're, they're probably not selling it to somebody 
who's who's then going to put it with a bowl. It's it's probably needs to go to the butcher and and end up being eaten, um, which then exacerbates the problem because where's the space to sell the cow? So all of these things you can see are are creating a real sense of desperation in the beef industry at at all of the stages. And so I think what would be really helpful right now is if there was a way to slow down the weight gain of these animals um, so that at least in the short term, we can avoid that, uh, that, that backlog or at least reduce the rate at which the backlog is growing. Yeah. And even if we can slow it, we do have animals already coming behind. This isn't a process that you slow overnight. Like you said, the animals that are coming to market over the next 18 months have been born already. Right. And so what we're doing is trying to slow down a train or an ocean freighter that's got a significant amount of inertia. And any slowing we do of, of sort of basic production will only hit the market a year or more from now. Absolutely. Yep. And if the market is recovered, then all of a sudden we'll see fewer animals coming to market and more expensive beef at the, at the beef counter. So I thought you made an interesting point that the cow is really the factory. And there are lots of things strategically we do to plan and decide when we're going to have different animals come to the market. But we continue to have a biological process that we can't just we can't stop the production line. We have a we have a living, breeding animal. So I think that that description has given has given people an excellent sort of understanding of some of the challenges and, and maybe a little bit of the structure of the beef industry that that many people don't have already. Yeah. I've taken as much as your time of your time as I promised, and maybe even a little more. So I'm going to say, is there is there anything that you wanted to say today that you didn't get a chance to yet? Yeah, I think the only additional thing I, I would say is the term that you you're going to be hearing a lot from the beef sector is set aside, and that's sort of the the, the terminology we're giving to the sort of assistance that we're looking for from the government. Because you're you're right, the only way you can stop the production is where the bull impregnates the cow. You can you can choose not to do that. But after you've got the calves coming, then your next decision or your ability to control things is maybe to slow it down with less of a, with a diet that uh, kind of slows down the weight gain. And that's what we're talking about, set aside, is we take some cattle and, and set them aside and put them on a more of a maintenance ration rather than a growth ration. Okay, well, uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about it. And uh, I think... Governments are paying more and more attention to the food supply as, as it's been in the news quite a bit lately. So uh, thanks for taking the time, John. And it was interesting. I learned some things. Uh, I hope the listeners did too. And I hope you and your family say, stay safe and healthy. Stay safe, stay well fed, uh, and have a good weekend. Thanks, Mike. And eat beef, right? Absolutely. Good. Thanks very much, John. We wrap up another episode of Food Focus. I thought I would just take a quick moment to thank Molly Gallant, who really does the heavy lifting in producing this podcast. She does all the hard work. I get to have the interesting discussions. Thank Zachary Von Massow for the original music. Before we go, I'd like to remind you again about our foodfocusguelph.ca website. Check out our blog, updated at least weekly. Check out previous versions of the podcast. Check out our trends report and get in touch with us. Food Focus at uoguelph.ca. We'd love to have you send us comments, ideas, suggestions. 
and just to interact and hear what you're thinking about. Finally, if you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate us wherever you get your podcast as this helps other people find us. So thanks again. Hope you enjoyed it and looking forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.